Let's go ahead and pray and we will begin our study in Revelation. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and graciousness to us. Lord, we thank you that you have not hid yourself from us, but that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. Father, I pray you'll bless this study uh, as we embark on this study of Revelation. I, I pray that you'd give us insight. I pray that you would encourage us. I, I pray that we would, uh, uh, we would see that Christians before us have persevered through trials and tribulations. And Lord, that would be uh, an encouragement for us to persevere as well. Uh, again, I ask that you'd bless our time together. We praise you and we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, Revelation chapter 1, we are going to read the first three verses, and uh, we are going to look at that. Tonight will be somewhat of a lengthy um, introduction. Um, I'll give a little bit of background and uh, a little bit of setting um, and, and three different ways that Revelation is usually interpreted, and uh, then we'll, we've got some, a few things to look at from this, this passage tonight. So... Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. <clears throat> and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. For the time is near. So tonight we are going to begin our study in the book of Revelation. And for, the several, for several months, we have been looking at the doctrine in general of eschatology. That is, the study of end times. And our reason for doing that, one, was the, the time that we're living in. Um, I, I know there's people's mind begins to wonder uh, of what's going on and things of that nature. But I also wanted you to see what the Word of God had to say um, from, from Daniel all the way uh, through uh, the end of Revelation. I wanted you to see the whole of Scripture concerning the return of Jesus and just that, that whole doctrine of end times as well. And also that we would, as we were studying through this, that we would, uh, it would prepare us for tribulation and persecution that lies ahead. Um, there's also uh, another reason that we find encouragement, as I said in my prayer, as we see what has taken place in the past um, and that it has been consistent, consistent throughout um, the church age. And then also uh, as to see how this doctrine um, that many have sensationalized, and I would even go so far as to say over-sensationalized, um, and to see that it is practical for our everyday life. Um, the mistake that many in their study of end times makes is first approaching the Scripture with their mind made up about what it says. Now, we, we do that on, on all sorts of levels with the Scripture. We, we come to a passage of Scripture and our mind's already made up. We don't seek uh, to know what the actual meaning is. We don't seek to find out any background that would that would that would kind of lend itself to help us with the meaning, uh, and we do that because of things that we've heard through our life, maybe assumptions that we've made without doing um, deeper study. 
Um, this is true really for Scripture in general, but also for, for really for any doctrine um, that we could, we could apply that to. Um, what our approach should be first in humility. We don't approach the, the Scripture with the not I know it all mentality, but God, would you teach me mentality. Um, if we approach it with humility, He will teach us. Um, and then secondly, we need to approach it also asking the question, what does the Bible say? That will be our, our question. When we open the Bible to read it, to study it, when you hear me preach or hear someone else, is what is the Bible saying? What is the Bible, not what does the Bible mean to me, but what is the Bible saying in general? And we see then how that applies um, to us. And if we approach it in this manner, we can be sure that the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth, John says. Another mistake that is made is thinking <clears throat> that Revelation is the only book that speaks to the matter of the second return of Jesus. Now, for the longest time, that's where I was. I thought that Revelation was um, the only book that spoke to that. And when I began to, to, to pastor and, and preach and study, and I began to see that, hey, oh, Daniel was talking about it in the, in, in the Old Testament um, as well. And that, again, was the point of studying this doctrine as a whole. Now, the book of Revelation speaks to the second coming of Jesus, as we'll see. But it also um, speaks to all that the church will go through throughout the church age, otherwise known as the millennium. I was once asked, does it really matter what I believe concerning end times? Now, our leaders in our Southern Baptist Convention, uh, namely um, Al Mohler, president of Southern Seminary, um, has said that this is a, what he calls a tertiary doctrine, a third-tier doctrine. In other words, it doesn't matter what you believe about that. And I would contend that, yes, it does matter what you believe because, number one, we want to know what the Bible says, but number two, if all doctrine is profitable, then it has to have an effect on my life. Uh, and we'll see that here uh, in a moment as well. Now, the person that asked this question, I don't think, was being defiant in any way, but uh, really believed that this particular doctrine had no effect on his day-to-day -day life. And we'll see that it does have a, an effect on this day-to-day -day life. Um, 2 Timothy 3.16 is familiar to all of us. All Scripture is given by God, or it is God-breathed and is profitable, and it goes on to say for doctrine, for reproof, so on and so forth. And this word profitable means advantageous or beneficial. Um, and we see well, what he's saying is that the Scripture as a whole is advantageous for your life. So if the Scripture as a whole is advantageous for our life, then that must mean the parts that's talking about the second return of Christ, right? That must mean the parts that may seem obscure and that we have to do a little bit more digging to find the meaning. That must mean that a book like Numbers, that is almost all genealogy, has some profit in our life. So we see that all of Scripture is good. It's profitable um, in our life. And the way we find out it's profitable is that when we obey it, that we hear the Word, we, we study the Word, and we obey the Word. And that's what, that's what builds our trust and our faith in God. That verse goes on to say it's profitable for doctrine. This is what we believe and what we teach. And certainly, if you have done any, any sort of study, you have seen how um, the Bible as a whole has been a help 
and has been profitable and beneficial for your life. Now, the question would then be, how then can eschatology be to our advantage? How is it that the end times, a study of end times would be profitable to our advantage? In Luke 21, verse 34, Jesus is talking, uh, previous to that, is talking about signs that would happen before His return. And He gets down to verse 34 and He says this, Take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life, and so that day come upon you unawares. Now, that day that He's talking about is His return. And what He's saying basically is... um, don't become intoxicated with the cares of this life to the point my return catches you by surprise. Now, I, I believe we're probably pretty close to that point where people have caught, caught, been caught up with the cares of this life, trying to get ahead in life, trying to uh, amass things, and they've forgotten what the Scriptures had to say or just ignored what the Scriptures had to say. And so we've become intoxicated with, with all that the world offers to us, and we've we've uh, it's going to that day that when Jesus returns will take us by surprise. Now, as I've studied um, various books in the Bible, in particular, and, and some church history, I believe for about the last hundred and fifty plus years or so, we've had a view of end times that has not prepared us for tribulation, nor has it taught us to guard. Um, our hearts and minds in preparation for the second return of Jesus. This may sound like a, a, a maybe a, a confusing statement, maybe maybe a statement that doesn't make any sense. But let me ask you this: sitting right here, right now, whatever you have been taught in the past, whatever you believe right now about the imminent return of Christ, has it caused you to live a more holy life? If holiness is the goal in the Christian life, does what you believe about the second return of Christ, does it, does it, do you see the urgency of living a holy life before God? Um, secondly, what you believe about the imminent return of Christ, does it cause you to proclaim the gospel with great urgency? Does it cause us to see people are lost and without Christ and judgment is coming and if, if they don't follow Christ in faith, repenting of their sin, then when Jesus returns, it's over. Does it cause us to persevere in the face of trials? Does it give us hope when we see tribulation and suffering come into our lives? See, if I believe those left after the rapture, if there are going to be some left after the rapture, are going to get a second chance at salvation then I'm going to shirk, shirk my responsibility of making disciples. If I have this, this view of, of Jesus' return, that He's going to return and take the Christians out, and then there's going to be this second wave of people getting saved, why do I even need to proclaim the gospel? Why do I, why do I see the urgency in that? And the, and the truth is, is that if that's the case, then we could all say, well, we can wait till the next wave. Right? And I'll just go on about my life. However, if I believe that God has intended for the gospel to accomplish a specific task, we saw that in Daniel 12, 7, then I'm compelled to proclaim the gospel wherever I go. 
If I understand that Jesus is going to return and judgment is coming, then I'm compelled by that to proclaim the gospel. As we see in the Great Commission, he says, go make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them. Um, And so we see that urgency there. If I believe that Jesus could return at any moment, then I must examine myself and guard against sin daily. Uh, Imagine you sitting in the quiet of your room or the quiet of your house and having sinful, lustful thoughts and Jesus returns. That you haven't guarded your heart, you haven't guarded your mind, and, and you've allowed these things to come into your mind and Jesus returns. Oh, what shame there would be. Well, what shame to know that the King of all knows our thoughts and would see our thoughts. I, I hope that as we've walked through this doctrine of eschatology over the last several months that I've communicated these truths to you. That eschatology does matter. It, it sounds like a big word that people like to throw around, but understand that the return of Jesus does matter to us. Not just for the sake that we get raptured out of this sin-cursed world and it is purged with fire and, and, and a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth is brought in that we get to enjoy sinless forever. These all has, have implications in our life. If I haven't communicated that to you, I hope from this point forward that you understand that and that, that gets communicated very clearly. And before we move forward in this text, and we're going to get to that here in a moment, I want to give you a few items concerning the background and setting of Revelation. Now, let me say this again. I said this a while back. It is Revelation, singular, not Revelations, plural. Within this Revelation, however, there are many visions that we will come across as we walk through these chapters. Um, Just some FYI, the the majority of scholars believe Revelation to have been written around A.D. 95. I will say this, that depending on on your view of how you're going to interpret Revelation, um, you either have an earlier view of about A.D. 60 to 65 or so, or if you're going to see it as something later on, then you're going to... Uh, see the writing at about AD 95 and the, it seems like the majority believe that John, the Apostle John wrote it um, in, in the, at the latter end of the, uh, of the first century. Now, we don't have to worry about the author, do we? We know who the author was. Um, if you look there in uh, verse 1, um, at the end he says, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. Uh, this is John The apostle who was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, he also identifies himself in verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion. Uh, Take note of this and remember this uh, for a couple weeks. In tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the Isle of Patmos when this revelation came, came to him. Now, regarding the views of interpretation, um, and I'll, I'll try to type up a, a, an outline for you on this. I didn't have time today, but I'll, I'll work at that this week and, and get that out because it's not, it's not some words that you need to memorize. Um, and I, matter of fact, I had, I had trouble memorizing them until today. Um, the first view of interpretation is what is called the preterist view. 
Um, this view sees Christ's prediction in the Olivet Discourse, which would be Matthew 24 and Mark 13, as referring to the Roman army's destruction of Israel and the temple in A.D. 70. Now, they would argue further that John wrote the book of Revelation before A.D. 70 and that it describes Nero Caesar's persecution of the church. The references to judgment on Babylon that we see in Revelation refer to Israel and not Rome. Um, Now, the reason you see that that they're going to say that it was written before A.D. 70 when these events took place is because not only is this an apocalyptic book, but it is also a book of prophecy of things to come. Um, Now, in this view, this would mean that virtually all of the Bible's teachings about future things was fulfilled within the lifetimes of Christ's disciples. Now, if we look at Revelation, that it's um, not just speaking to the present, but speaking to the future, this view that I just mentioned says that these things have already happened. Now, there are some uh, that would go on to say that uh, all of the prophecies of the Olivet Discourse um, in the book of Revelation uh, have taken place except for the resurrection and final judgment. They have not occurred yet. So you, you follow what I'm saying? That all of these prophecies that were mentioned in Matthew 24 and Matthew 13. Um, matter of fact, let's turn to Matthew 24. Let, let's go ahead and look at that. Just a few things there. Um, that way we, we have an idea. Matter of fact, my Bible at the top has... Um, a title of the Great Tribulation. Um, and really we could call it Great Tribulation, not the Great Tribulation, because it speaks to uh, tribulation throughout the age of the church. Um, in verse 3, uh, he says, uh, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? I'm talking about um, Jesus talking about uh, the, the temple. Um, oh, back in verse 2, Do you not see all these things? As surely I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they begin to ask, when will these things be? As a matter of fact, the when will these things be question, if you'll remember that from Daniel chapter 12. Remember one of the angels looked at the one who was over the water and said, How long until these things be? So that's what the disciples are asking. They say, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, that's, we've, people get caught up in that all the time about these signs. Remember, there's a book that came out several years ago, four, four blood moons, right? We've done past that fourth blood moon, if I remember right, and nothing's happened yet. Um, and let me say this, that one of the issues of over or let me of sensationalizing eschatology is that there are there's money to be made. I mean, there's been movies and books for years written and, and made, and billions of dollars literally have been made from this very doctrine. And you've got all these competing views, and they all say we're all of scripture. How do we know what scripture says? Well, we'll see that as we as we've gone through this doctrine in, over the last several months, but even as we go through Revelation. Um, what will be the sign of your coming? So they understand 
um, and of the end of the age. They understand two things, that Jesus is going to return and that this present age that they were in and that we are now in is going to have an end. It's going to come to uh, a, a consummation. So Jesus goes on to say in verse 4, Take heed that no one deceive you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. Now you couple that with 1 John chapter 2 that um, there are, even now John said at that time, there are many antichrists. There are many that oppose Christ. There are many who oppose the gospel. And so what's the end going to look like? It's going to be many people coming in the name of Christ, portraying themselves as Christ, yet being opposed to Christ. Look at verse 6. He says, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all those things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. Now, what has been the consistent thing going on? If you've studied, if you've studied any kind of American history, world history, church history, there has been consistently wars and rumors of wars and nations rising against nation. So things are continuing uh, in a sense as they've always been, but it will be heightened. Um, earthquakes in various places, we're hearing of earth, and, and various places, think about um, just the last few years we've seen tsunamis. I mean, earth, who would have thought of an earthquake at the bottom of the ocean that creates this wave? He says, all those are the beginning of sorrow. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. He's talking to the, to the disciples here. But think about where we're at right now. That, that in reality, this, I mean, I think I saw the other day, it was 52 countries the Bible is illegal in. You get caught with a Bible in these countries, there's serious consequences. Um, in verse 10, he says, Then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. That word offended there, I believe, is a scandalon. That's it, scandalous. They, they will be uh, scandalized. They will betray one another. I, I mean, what's it like to... Think about this. What's it like to come into church and you're looking around wondering who's going to betray who? I mean, think about things like that. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Now, speaking of false prophets, this last year... Um, it's called the New Apostolic Reformation. It is a hyper-charismatic wing of Pentecostalism full of false prophets. Every prophet predicted, prophesied, that President Trump would win the election. They lied. Now they're, they're, kinda, they're offering these so-called apologies. But false prophets, they're abounding. It seems like every day there's a new one pops up on YouTube or pops up on, 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 feed, on the feed on Facebook. Um, look at verse 12. And because lawlessness will abound. I mean, you think about this. We've got, we've got something going on in our government right now that is illegal. I mean, you, you've, they're trying to prosecute a private citizen now. Trying to impeach him is what they're trying to do. Now, this is not in defense of President Trump. This is in defense of lawfulness against lawlessness. I mean, these, they, they're people that make up their own rules as they go. Lawlessness is abounding. I mean, just look around. 
This week <laughs> in Iberia Parish, there was a guy escaped from a cop, jumped in his cruiser, and took off, and they had to go on a chase. I mean, you think about all the craziness that's going on. But notice verse 13. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. That's the perseverance of the saints. And it's not that our endurance saves us, but that to the end where the tribulation increases, that God that, that they will be saved by the return of Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. That sounds pretty simple, does it not? We've got a list of things that's going to happen, and we've seen those things happen over our lifetime, and we see them increasing. And he says, the gospel will go out, and then the end will come. We, we compare that to Daniel 12, 7, where it says that the, that, that the power of the, uh, of the holy people will be scattered. Right? And, and there's other scriptures that we could bring into it um, as well. And so when the gospel, is what I said a moment ago, when the gospel has accomplished what God has intended for it to accomplish, Isaiah 55, 8-11, then it, the end will come. There's no need to go on. Look at verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Then it goes on and on. But the understanding here is that it predicts that, that that whole thing, if you read on in chapter 24, and Mark 13 is the parallel passage, if you read that whole thing, what this view I just talked about says, all of that happened before A.D. 70, or by A.D. 70. Now, that would be what's called full preterism. That, that they, don't, they believe that everything, even the return of Jesus... And the resurrection of the saints happened in A.D. 70. Now, what would be called a partial preterist says that, yes, all of that happened before A.D. 70 with the exception of the resurrection and the return of Jesus. Now, if you've got some questions, when, when I'm done here, I'm gonna, we're going gonna to have a time of questions. I, I, won't, I, won't, I don't want you all to leave tonight scratching your head. Um, so what this means is that virtually all of the Bible's teachings about future things was fulfilled within the lifetime of Christ's disciples. Now, the second view would be the total opposite of what I just described. It's called futurism. Future. A futurist centers his theological beliefs around national Israel and believes that most prophecies concerning Israel are to have a literal fulfillment in the future after the Christian church has been taken out of the world. Now, I don't want to get go down this rabbit hole too deep because we can go really deep with that, but we need to understand that God had one purpose for Israel. Now, that's not to say that He could not bring a revival to Israel. Um, certainly, He can bring a revival to anyone to whom He chooses because it is him, through His Spirit, and through His Word that brings revival to any people, no matter wherever they may be. We want to understand that. But we need not have this view of Israel that exalts Israel higher than it exalts God. God had one purpose for them, and that was to bring Jesus. 
Um, and there's many things that we can learn from that. Um, and so this view says everything is happening in the future. It's not happening right now. Now, the question, and then the, the, let me get to the third view. The third view of interpretation contends that Revelation is structured along the lines of what's called progressive parallelism. Now, we would also call it uh, um, oh, progressive uh, revelation as well. Um, what, which is basically the, the idea that the series of visions and revelation describe the course of history between the first and second coming of Christ, each from a different perspective, although these visions intensify before the time of the end. Now, you remember that word I taught you when we were looking in Revelation in regard to the doctrine of eschatology, recapitulation? And that's what we're going to see again as we walk chapter verse by verse through Revelation beginning in chapter 4 is that we will get a, 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 a vision with new information each time that, that vision is, is cast again. Now, here's a couple of questions I got in regards to those three. So we got one that says everything happened before A.D. 70. Um, with the exception, some would say, of the resurrection and return of Jesus. Then we've got another one that says, no, everything is happening way off in the future. And then we've got one that says, no, actually this is a, a storyline that has happened throughout the life of the church. And, and certainly we can see some consistency with that view. Now the question we want to answer is, um, how do these first two views how did they encourage believers in the first century that John wrote to? If you've got believers that are receiving this letter and they're reading these horrific things that are ha taking place, how did that encourage them and how did it exhort them if it all happened prior, some 25 years prior? I, it, it can't. There's no way that it could speak to them in that time. If it's all future, how does that encourage us in light of our situation today? But how did it encourage Christians in light of the situation in this day who were going through persecution? Now what we need to understand, if the Bible is profitable for all of us, for all generations, and for all walks of life, then it has to mean something that has some, some uh, legitimacy to it. It has to have a meaning that we, um, we recognize and that we can associate with. Now, I realize, I just, it seems like I just dumped a ton of information on you, and, and we're going to keep coming back to this. But here's what we need to understand, is that Revelation was written against the backdrop of Roman persecution. Understand that what was going on with John in his day, I believe it was under Domitian, was this uh, Roman persecution against the church. Now, Christians were called atheists. You know why? Because they didn't say Caesar is Lord. If you did not say Caesar is Lord, then you were considered an atheist. And you were persecuted for that. And that runs into all kinds of issues. I've mentioned to you before that they had the trade guilds. If you didn't bow to a particular God, if you didn't say Caesar is Lord... You lost the way to make a living. Therefore, that's why the church community became so important is because they began to exchange goods and services with one another so that they could make 
a living. So it's against the backdrop of Roman persecution. Understand that tribulation, persecution, and suffering has always been a part of the life of the church in one form or another. There have been times of ease, there's been times of tranquility, as we've seen with Hebrews, but there's also been quite a bit of time of, of trouble. Now our response to the suffering reveals the reality and depth of our faith, or it will reveal the shallowness and lack thereof. James said, count it all joy when you fall into trials of various kinds. The proper response to tribulation and persecution and suffering is joy. Why? Because we know God is working through that trial, through that suffering, to refine our faith, to strengthen our faith, to build our trust in Him. And so, whatever view of eschatology or in time the return of Christ that we have, it ought to be that it encourages us and causes us to walk uh, in holiness, but also to realize that no matter what befalls us in this life, if, if I were to have someone walk through the back door and shoot me for standing up here preaching, I'm in the presence of my Savior, right? I mean, what joy it would be to, to see Him face to face. Now, the recipients of this letter are the seven literal churches in Asia Minor. I've, I've heard throughout my lifetime these are seven church periods. I, I, don't, I wouldn't agree with that at this point. There are seven literal churches. However, when we get to that point, we will see that these churches were faced with various trials and various things that they were going through. I've said um, that, well, we've all heard that America is nowhere found in the Bible, and I would disagree with that. I would say that the Laodicean church is a picture of American Christianity today. We're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And the, and the reality that we're faced with, though, is that there are people panicking over the possibility of tribulation and persecution come up, coming upon us. Why should we panic? I mean, it's been a part of the life of the church throughout the life of the church. Wow. All right. I'm going to stop there tonight.